Hi, everybody. My name is Lady H. With me is Lady D. Hi, everybody. And we are here to talk Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story. And, you know, we can't do it by ourselves. So we have assembled a Georgian group of Avengers with us, as always, the gentleman, Sir Rain Coleman of Blurred. <laughs> What's up? Happy to be here. Also joining us is his royal homie, Sir Reese. Hello. And last but not least, hmm, how can I describe KP? The Lady Danbury of the group. <laughs> I will take that. <laughs> the elder states person, the one who exhibits Black feminism. KP, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here and to be with everyone. All righty. So we've all gathered to talk Queen Charlotte. How many times has everybody seen the show? One and a half. One. 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 So since we've all kind of said one, we're probably going to lean on you a little bit more, Serene, in case we miss anything. But uh, this is going to be a spoiler-filled talk, and I'm just going to read the synopsis of Queen Charlotte, the official synopsis. Centered on Queen Charlotte's rise to prominence and power, this Bridgerton verse prequel tells a story of how the young queen's marriage to King George sparked both a great love story and societal shifts creating the world of the ton inherited by the characters in Bridgerton. Sir Rees, just overall thoughts about the show, how it landed on you, and one thing that you want us to delve a little bit deeply in later. Wow. So watching this puts a lot of things in perspective with what Bridgerton was trying to um, deliver to us. I must apologize once again um, for Lady Danbury. I did not know your game. I was unaware of your game. And watching this series kind of made me like, let me stand for my lady because she definitely, from the things she dealt with on the show, I was like, okay, I understand. I get it. You know, at first I was just like, don't shoot this a little bit too fast for my taste. But as I kept continuing to watch, She's definitely one of my favorites now. I guess we can hope we can dive deeper into the mental health aspect of it, of what was going on during that time and then how they try to deal with those, what was the illnesses and things like that, how they able to fix what was going on. I mean, that was just real interesting to see. We can absolutely do that. And May is Mental Health Awareness Month in North America. I'm not sure if, if it is globally, but... It came out in a timely, timely time here. Lady D? I think the show was absolutely phenomenal. That's how it hit me. And very, very happy with it. Love that we get to delve into everyone's backstory a little bit. I would like us to touch base on these children of Queen Charlotte. They are a mess. Okay. You know what? Uh, I'm glad that the next person is... Lord Rain, because when we talked about season two of Bridgerton, one of the things that we talked about was the children of Charlotte and King George. So I will link that episode in the show notes. But Rain, you got some answers about 
those children. I guess yeah. we'll talk about them later. But what are you looking forward to and how did it land? Um, I'll say t- for me, it was better than Bridgerton than both seasons. Um, I think that is a tight rope you walk with doing a prequel, especially if it wasn't planned out already, is failing horribly or doing a great job. Um, it's not without its faults, but for me, there are two specific things. One being Lady Danbury and everything surrounding her from like her rise to like common folk matriarch, I guess, in quotations. And um specifically with the people of color, and also Brimsley and Reynolds, their Julius to Beyonce style relationship that they have with the queen and the king, and that being two queer characters, that's also something that kind of stood out to me that I would like to get into. So those two. Awesome. KP? Uh, For me, I really, really enjoyed it. And I think as somebody who has sort of like studied the work of Shonda Rhimes, this series, the majority of it was written by her, even with episode five, the the story, the teleplay was by her. And um, so there were only two people that wrote on this one consistent director who I'm his work I'm also very familiar with. So there are certain tropes of of Shonda's that come alive or you start to see her imprint in um, with some of the, the characters, especially the women. Um, I, uh, there were some really just amazing lines in here. I thought it was really well written. The performances, I, you know, have much to say about the aesthetics. It's beautiful. The thing that I would like to talk about more later is um, the way motherhood gets contrasted in this series with what we see in the Bridgerton series when it comes to Violet Bridgerton and her way of mothering, like specifically their Black women and mothering and the additional kind of intersections of what that means and the additional layers that they have to contend with. I very much sort of like noticed the contrast and, you know, would like to talk more about that. That's awesome. One of the reasons why I was so excited that you accepted the invitation to join us, KP, is because you did study Shondaland. And I can say that the only two series that I have seen, besides Bridgerton, but two series that I've seen of hers from start to finish was Scandal and The Catch. And I think The Catch, because it was only like two seasons, but I didn't see Private Practice I didn't see most of Grey's and some uh, inventing Anna, some of her other things, but I too saw the aesthetic and some of her imprints, the walk and talk and some other things. And I said, oh my goodness, the person that I really need here is you. Um, And then when we get, we're going to talk about the sex and the great experiment, but there were some things (laughs) when I said, oh my gosh, that's a, I'm giving Livy and Fitz right here. So I really wanted to talk about, honestly, the book and having a white woman who did not normally imagine her world that she created diversely and having read the book and also watching some of the videos, the contrast and the understanding of the two. It's it's really interesting because I really started to feel Shonda's imprint and what it means for a Black woman's gaze 
and centering Black women in this world and how it contrasts to the world as it had been presented and imagined as white. I just want to clarify here because I I don't know very much about Julia Quinn. I don't know the original source material. I know of it, but I have never read them, not really interested in reading about them. Not I can't say it's not the time period that, you know, that I'm interested in because, you know, I only recently like last year gave Jane Austen a try and I'm like, oh, I quite like her. Um, So, and she, you know, is definitely writing in the Regency era, but I just want to be sure that her books are completely white and this is all Shonda's reimagining. This is correct. Now I can say that I did read those books, those books. I read them 20 years ago and the entire series. And then also reread the first two in preparation for the last two seasons. And yes, they are completely white and they are devoid of diversity. I Can I say something to what you mentioned earlier? Well, I guess we're going to talk about Julia Quinn and sort of like white material and Shonda like coming in and sort of making this Black and POC um, friendly. Uh, one of the things I really like about Shonda's work and um, for which I disagree with some other scholars who have criticize her so-called, what do they call it? Um, Colorblind casting. Um, I don't see it as colorblind casting because I think when you define it in that way, you're saying that the default is white. And so if a character shows up that isn't white, that somehow, oh, you're throwing caution to the wind. When for Shonda, having read interviews of hers, I remember her talking about how when she's writing for or when she was writing for Meredith Grey um, or Christina, she's like, those are Black women in my head. I'm speaking as from that perspective through these women that are white. So for her, Blackness can be something really specific, but then it can also be something very universal for her. So she doesn't she sees Blackness in things because she is Black. And so she brings that to the screen quite naturally in a way that isn't really didactic. And I think sometimes when people don't, if you're not saying Black, 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 Black all the time, they people don't regard it as such, where I can't wait to talk about all of the things that she put in this series that are so obviously like racial commentary and really also kind of direct um, hits at the crown, even still. (laughs) But uh, I forget what my point was about this. But yes, just about her. um, That is just the way her mind thinks um, when she reads material. She's reading it from her experience. And the Black perspective is sort of like naturally there for her, it's not a limitation for her to see as, oh, you wrote these as white characters because that's your limitation as an author. And I don't have that. So I am going to bring what I naturally bring to a series. So talking about Shonda, one of the quotes that I read about her that stuck out to me was this one. And she said, I'm very obsessed with Queen Charlotte And I always call her the Beyonce of the show. And one of the things that we can say about this show is that with the hair, but the songs and the makeup, all of the songs, most of them that the pop 
covers were all done by Black women artists. Now, I Will Always Love You was popularized by Whitney Houston, although I do want to acknowledge that Dolly Parton, so far, very unproblematic white, wrote <laughs> this. Why y'all laughing? Wrote this song, but she popped with Miss Whitney popularized it. And we had three songs by Beyonce, Halo, Deja Vu, and Run the World. There was also Nobody Gets Me by SZA. That song was a surprise to me for an inclusion. Obviously, we got If I Ain't Got You, which was done by Alicia Keys. And we got two versions of it, one which she sang and one that was just orchestral that was in the song as a score. And also not included in the show, but we also got surrounding the show was Big Frida. And Big Frida released our Louisiana queen of bounce. She released a song. I think it was called, I actually don't know. Because all she got, Queen Charlotte. I think it was called Queen Charlotte. If you haven't seen the video, the video is quite lovely. I do have a caveat. I would have loved if they featured all of the HB, unmute yourself, Rain, so you can just come in with the amen and hallelujahs. <laughs> but uh, I wish the video does feature Xavier University, which is an HBCU in Louisiana. I wish that all of the HBCU queens could have had a cameo in some way, shape, or form. Um, I thought that would have been really nice. So, but let's just talk about the aesthetics of the show. Muse, what really resonated with you? And if you saw any visual language that centered Blackness or Black women that differs from what you saw in Bridgerton, please shout that out as well. Okay. Um, well, Charlotte, like her across the board, um, what was she, German in this? Um, but even with like her wigs, I think they did a really good job at translating every version of her visually from the first two seasons into this um show because even her wigs i you don't get much well i don't want to say you don't get if you seek it out you'll probably find it but just generally being taught in schools you don't get a lot of this is what black people look like in this particular region this is mainly like oh slavery happened you know you don't get the um the depths of like what we look like and what we did and what we sounded like and uh until you get to like college level courses or you're searching for yourself or with the now with the internet being how it is it's probably easier to find but seeing the wigs specifically the hair and the way that charlotte's hair was constantly styled that blew my mind i i mean from the sheer volume to the color and even young charlotte being german and like booking against this like white microaggression from the princess like i'm wearing my like you you guys bought me essentially and i'm wearing my german garb but you're saying oh it's too elaborate it's like every white woman that does quote unquote sticky bangs but no black and brown women have been showing their baby hair since forever in a day but now that you're doing it and you're revamping it it's it's ghetto on them but on y'all it's this uh, this nice trendy thing and that's a lot of what i got with charlotte and the princess going back and forth and kind of the same thing with the princess and Lady Danbury, but to a different degree, um, where it almost looked like, and this is me working in this corporate environment with a bunch of white folks forever in a day, but 
like the princess is this low level manager who's like giving all of these limitations and picking with Charlotte, this young girl who is just a young girl wearing things that young girls wear. But then her relationship with Danbury is more or less like a seasoned woman who's been in this role before. So my fight with you isn't necessarily aesthetic. It's more, um, I'll say mental, just to keep it simple, keep it plainly. But I, that constant back and forth between the three of them or the two of them and the princess was something that really stuck out to me. So the hair and then that specific plot point, I guess, was something that really stuck out to me. If, if I could hop on the hair thing as well, um, I agree with so much of what you said. And I think although Queen Charlotte in the two Bridgerton series, we've seen her be very um, elaborate and ostentatious. Part of that was the time, but also I think what I got to appreciate more within um, the Queen Charlotte story is a sense in which that they're saying, this is also blackness, that sense of like extraness that we sometimes bring to our look and our aesthetics. Mm -hmm. Like you get to interpret it in that way because you see that this young girl coming from this other uh, place, not insecure at all in at who all. she was, like very much sort of like forthright. And so you come to understand, oh, this has always been in her. And that, as you said, Rain, that very first fight that she has with um, the, the Dowager Princess about the wedding dress and how she's going to bring herself and her aesthetics as part of her to this plain ass country, which just so you guys know, that is a little bit of shade because um, England is sort of like known to be in all of Europe, like the least sophisticated in some ways in terms of like fashion. So like the French were turning it out, the Germans had the, the Austrians. And so that was just like a little bit of shade, that whole fight and their plainness. But I love that. And they found a way to make every texture of oh. black hair so fucking regal, and beautiful and it is just a master class to say every single one of you out there who are doing um i don't know why i'm getting emotional who are doing period um series looking back at history and think and think that it's an excuse not to employ Ooh. black people in your films because let's get it real they'd they be doing that shit so that we don't have to be part of the story mm. but whatever to be like we have been here and even in the UK, it has been a fight because so much of like Black history surrounds the sort of like arrival of the Windrush generation, right? So the 1948 ship that came from specifically Jamaica and brought like a lot of uh, Caribbean people. And then you have subsequent waves of, you know, South Asian people. Then you have the Asians that came from Africa and Idi Amin, and you have like more mm -hmm. Africans that come in the decade after. And it's like, well, Black history and other people of color being here started way before that. Like we were here in the Regency period too. We were here in the Victorian period. Like we've been here smaller like numbers, but we have been here. So I appreciate it as this being a more deliberate way for the show to be like, no, no, no. The first two series are not colorblind. We all belong. This is a deliberate telling of what history looked like, perhaps a little bit more, because it's TV, it's always going to be sort of um, more mm -hmm. elevated or exaggerated. But some of the representations of like people of color, that's not a complete 
why? Um, so yeah, I thought the hair, oh, I forgot what I wanted to say. Yeah. So the hair part that the extraness that Queen Charlotte brought, I really saw that as something kind of deliberately black. Yep. And also because I remember I was reading a book where they were talking about Yoruba and other tribes sort of in West Africa, sort of like pre-colonial and talking about how every tribe women there would have different ways of doing and styling their hair and sort of elaborate patterns because that also told you where they come from and who they were. So that the hair part isn't simply aesthetic to us. It's also telling about our heritage and our history as people in like granular levels that white people just never recognize. So I really appreciate that part of the elaborateness of, you know, Afro textured hair. Come on. Yes. I meant to that. Lady D, Cerise. I don't know if there's anything left to say. Dresses. The, fa well, the fashions, the casting. Well, while y'all are doing that, while we're talking <laughs> about hair, there is one thing that I want to say is, as a part of that, like, yes and amen. And one thing that I did notice differently, and it has, I think it has to do with the youth, was the fact that so much of it appeared to be her hair versus when we get to Bridgerton, it's obviously constructed wigs because it's, even more regal because she's older and it's their different colors. But in this time frame, it's darker hair. It looks like her hair that's been styled in a way versus I'm bringing something extra or I'm bringing the fashion or I'm making this my own and helping to define this Georgian period um, where they do have the bows and, you know, like the different extravagances and the heart shaped thing. But here we see like when she gets married, it's, it's a perfectly textured, you know, pulled out, coiffed, even all the way around, but has lots of height. It looks like her hair, but more and the crown. And then even some of the other styles that we see it, you know, like pull back and things like that, where the message that I got is even her hair as it stands right now is also regal. So it's just like my hair as it is right now, without the construction of the wigs and everything else, is also regal. And maybe that's a consideration for people who um, think that they need to straighten the hair for their wedding day or for proms or for graduations. Like, no, no. You can look majestic and the hair as it is, you ain't got to do all that because as you got it, I mean, I've said regal a few times, but it is royal. And like you said, let them know where you came from. Amen. <laughs> so Lady D, now I'm going to shut up and you can talk about everything else. Well, you know, the, the dresses, the fashion from the somebody who used to work at the department store forever. Every bit of the fashion was fabulous. It was absolutely gorgeous. From George to Charlotte to Lady Danbury to Violet, everybody's fashion was absolutely on point. I mean, the textures, the colors, we did a lot of that. Black women, we look good. Black people in general, we look good in color in this. We had the part, we had the royal purples, the blues, we had a little bit of yellow, creams, everything it was just, it was perfect. 
I don't know if there was anything to say that there was wrong in the fashion. I mean, I think I could dance around and twirl around in a few of those dresses. I, I'll suck it up and, and be corseted and with, with whalebone for a few hours. They, they were spectacular. Well, then you girl, you get that world bound. She already told you, you can't balance. You'll slice and dice your nice inside. That, that is true, but you'll, but you will look like fire. <laughs> well, pain is beauty. All right. Well, beauty is pain. And as uh, Sir Christopher says, beauty knows no pain as he sits there and yanks my hair. I wanted to say, we ain't listening to your brother. <laughs> <laughs> but my brother, but my brother is right. He is, but that's why I don't want to listen to him. <laughs> he is. Well, well, look, he should be, look, on a side note, he should be over there on Bridgerton set in Queen Charlotte set, slaying some hair up in there. So what I'm hearing is that for your next birthday, Sir Christopher <laughs> is going to create you a wig that rivals Queen Charlotte's. Or are you trying to say that you are planning to have your own Queen Charlotte's ball where you will name someone the diamond, <laughs> i.e. me, so the rest I of y'all am... bitches don't have a chance. No, I'll just do that. Uh, okay, that's what I'm hearing. That's what Fair you're enough. hearing? That's, that's, what what, that's what I heard. That's what okay. I heard. Well, look, we better call Well, we better call Sir Christopher and tell him that all of this is going down because he don't have a clue. That's true. Did you? I was any... going to say, Rain's been shaking his head the whole time over there. No, I'm just taking it all in. I'm I'm looking at the the show and revisiting the fashions. But yeah, I uh, I, I agree. I just wish it could have been a little better. What What do you mean a little better? Well, I don't say better. I guess a little bit more, maybe a little bit more ethnic. And this is with my own ignorance, um, because I don't. The extent of my Regency knowledge is things that I've consumed, like these shows. Um, but I just feel like there is another aesthetic that would have. I don't know. It's only so much you can do with a show and seeing so many POCs on the show because there were a lot of Asian folks like um, and I don't. Oh, Lord, I'm going to sound so ignorant. Um, East Asian folks who were in the, the mix with the brown people and i'm thinking like is because they all look good and they all looked uh period appropriate but i questioned like is that all it was i guess when we see people in like oh god don't judge me but like in african garb where you're wearing certain patterns and certain colors and certain like constructed materials i just wondered if because all we got was this like and not not to say it's bad because I enjoyed every outfit, but all we got was this very particular Victorian look. If there was not a way to incorporate something different, or would that be like going so far against what the show is? So are um, you thinking hmm? sorry to interrupt? So are you thinking about when uh Lady Dansbury mentions where they're from in Africa that we don't see early on? Mm -hmm. Yes, and from Sierra Leone that we don't see anything that resembles the right. African continent within mm -hmm. their home there as yeah. well as their style yeah. of dress. Because it okay. felt like that was, I, I like that addition, but it almost felt like this is to show you that I'm just as wealthy as you, which is fine. But I was also like, well, where is that 
influence? Am I just not seeing it? Because even her three children were dressed just like Violet. And I was like, I wonder, I wonder what that is. Is that a larger conversation of like maybe assimilating to your area or what? But you're also not recognized by these rich royal white people until the great experiment. So would it matter if you, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I'm educated enough in that specific fashion of the era, but nothing felt unVictorian to me. Can I um, offer just a perspective on that? Mm-hmm. So I think in both the, I think especially for um, the Georgian era that the Queen Charlotte um, series takes up, that I, I think what I interpreted it as that part of it is about assimilation, right? Mm-hmm. Being in um, a country run by white people where they do not have the 20th or even 21st century sort of like mindset about mm-hmm. challenging, especially when their own sense of um, self and safety and determination within that nation was precarious sometimes. Mm, okay. And if we specifically talk about um, Lady Danbury, her husband, Herman, he was very much the kind of Clarence Thomasy type. Yes. In that he was very concerned with white people's like, acceptance of him. Mm. She was the one like beyond saying him up, you know, uh, to be like, listen, you're just as good at that as that mm-hmm. word, just as good at them, as she says to her son um, as well. But he didn't value her opinion as a, like an equal partner anyway. So as his wife and him being sort of the patriarch of that family, I could understand how their home, both the one they had before and the manner that they that they get um, their deeded with their title, mm-hmm. would not reflect a past in the quote unquote, you know, heart of darkness mm-hmm. um, at that period of time, because what people were focused on is trying to be seen as tantamount, as equal to be accepted into society as these white people. Not that they thought they were white, but they right, wanted. Right where they were so that part didn't like seem out of the ordinary to mm-hmm. me when I thought about it sort of like in that context and especially who Lord Danbury was portrayed to be okay I could definitely see that yeah it wasn't a huge issue but I was like oh where are the patterns where <laughs> where's the different club okay, yeah. where's the <laughs> I hear that um Cerise, would you like to add anything about the aesthetic or would you like to transition into Lady Danbury? Um, y'all mind, I don't mind if you transition because y'all killed that. Not enough to say anyway. So, Lady Danbury, um, wow. All right, if you remember when we set it off and you remember the point where Jada was like outside the outside of Nate's car and she said that line, there was a couple of times I wanted to make that joke, but I didn't because I was just like, after finding out how she got into that marriage in the first place, I was like, nah, I probably wouldn't be appropriate. But Lady Danbury definitely, after the very untimely passing of um, her husband, decided to say, you know, I'm not going to be, you know, registered to this thing of you have to have to be married in order to be, you know, someone of stature around in this time period. So she did things on her own terms, and which I was really happy to see. 
But a lot that, that she's done on this show kind of bridges her character on bridges, especially season two, uh, stand out in terms of securing that person that you want to be with in that aspect. Because when she got down with Violet's pops and everything, <laughs> it definitely was just like, you know, she was definitely taking that into her own hands as well, too. You know, finding her self to be happy, but not being confined to the norms of society at that time. I want to say one thing about what you, um, Reese, mentioned like early in the cast when you were introducing yourself, you apologized to Lady Danbury. That was you, right? That was me, yes. Yeah, that you didn't know her game. I just wanted to say that this series made me understand why they equipped her with the accoutrement of a pimp because she is a pimp dress. Like, and we get the story. I'm like, that's why you got the hat. That's why you got the game. That's who you are. <laughs> I'm sorry. Indeed. And was hitting people with it. That's She took her destiny into her own hands. She she grabbed the reins by the horn, by grabbed the horse by the reins and rode it into the destiny that she decided that she wanted to have and played a queen mother to get what she wants. And that is Shonda's favorite kind of female character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and hitting people with that cane remind me of my great grandmother. I mean, I wasn't going to say it, but yes. <laughs> Hey, look, my grandmother looked like the fierce first lady of the church that she was and the cane that she needed to walk. And if she couldn't catch you, that cane came and got you. It was kind of a Sinclair in regards to the Hispanic ladies, you know, black women had the cane, Spanish women had the um, chicleta. <laughs> wow. So, uh, Rain, do you have anything to say about Lady Danbury? Um, no, I just, I enjoyed her. Um, Arsima, she... Well, both her and India, who played Queen Charlotte as children or younger women, they both did a great job. But I think she really popped up on my radar. India, a little bit less because she was such a perfect casting for, um, what's her name, Golda, who played the older Queen Charlotte. Like they, I'm convinced they're related. They share a cousin or something. But Arsima her portrayal because her and the older danbury don't look alike they're not a one for one like um it's not a a perfect casting as far as aesthetics and that she stepped into that role and like brought that character to life still to me is a bit more impressive not to not knocking down you know don't pit two bad bitches against each other but like i'm not knocking down india at all but i think that because arsima doesn't fit the look of the older Danbury, the fact that she did such an amazing job really blew my mind. And she has informed my feelings about the Danbury from the first two seasons. Like I already liked her, but seeing this, I just like the, the small thing she did with her mouth, the way she moved, like even like everything about her was so good. Like these women to me feel like the way that Jabari who plays young will smith in the billy reboot did like it's like they studied they actually studied who they were supposed to be and i think she did an amazing job so i really don't got nothing else to say but i want to meet her i want to meet her i want to shake her hand i just want to meet this girl (laughs) her and india just let me meet them 
<laughs> and shout out to Arsima for her um, accent. Very credible. I mm. didn't hear the American in her like yeah. at all. She did a great job. Killed it. Oh. Indeed, she did. Very beautiful. I will say this now, I guess. One thing about this series, which was really interesting, because you named the four Black actresses in Golda, Adjua, India, and Arsima, mm -hmm. is that they had been doing a lot of press. And they had been doing a lot in America, Black press. So not only did they do Good Morning America and uh, your late night shows, but they also granted interviews to Ebony and Essence and Bossop and mm -hmm. The Root and Grio. And really we're talking about and centering being Black women. Like, no, don't get it twisted. We're Black women. Mm -hmm. And Arsima definitely was talking about um, the books that she was reading and used the term misogynoir and said, hey, in case you weren't sure what Lady Danbury was experiencing, that's exactly what it was like named it and called a thing a thing and said, hey, I know that Adjua's uh, Lady Danbury was very much, I don't want to say a dragon of the ton, but she called herself a dragon of the ton and she was fierce and that she was strong. But you needed to understand that she's also very vulnerable and talking about the human side of it because Black women aren't a monolith. Mm -hmm. So she was speaking those words in case white folk couldn't get the pretense and went on the screen. But um, in speaking about Lady Danbury and a lot of the conversation, one thing that they talked about as we talk about sex a little bit is that as Mr. AKA Herman got on her and did his business, yes, I'm saying it, uh, some people said that their scenes were marital rape. And because this was the darker of the characters, you know, like the character being a Lady Danbury, that that was extremely problematic because why is the dark-skinned woman having a love scene that looks like that? And I do want to ask you if you're okay with discussing it. I mean, was that what you saw and did it impact your enjoyment of the show or is it a problem? Okay. <laughs> we, we get into this, and I knew this was definitely going to come up, so let's talk about it. It just, seeing those scenes and just being, just thinking about the story of how she got into it. I guess she was literally sold to him, and she was raised in a way of being, you know, a lady or, or how her title was and everything. And she was just there. It was just like... She just had this look on her face, like letting him do what he needed to do. And it was just like, boom, it was over. You know, he taking out his false teeth. And I think like one of the early times they, they showed him and it was, she was like, you can, you can stay the night. And I was like, oh, I was like, well, God damn. And then she was just like constantly just begging just to get, I guess, to get the, the stench of him off of her. And it was like every time they had sex, boom, her late, I forgot her name was always drawing the bath for her and they was just always talking and things of that nature. It was uncomfortable to see, but it was just like, this is what her story was. And I know a lot of people were just pretty much like bothered by it, but I was like, it turned me off in a way, but at the same time, I was just like watching and I was just like, 
this is what arranged marriages was looking like. You know, she it wasn't no love there. It was like basically I'm here because I was put into this position. And especially like after, you know, he died and those other black like, people came around was like, um, what's gonna happen to us? You know, so it was basically like she had to endure that in order to get to where she was where she was. And I felt bad that that was her story, but it, it was just a lot for me in that aspect. Well, honestly, as women, sometimes even in a love-filled marriage, your sex life can feel like that. It can feel a chore even when it's love there. Because if it's not right, it ain't going to feel right. Love, no love, it's a chore. And especially in that time, it was a chore because the only job of women was to procreate, make heirs. That was the main mission. It's not very comfortable when that's the only thing you're thought to be able to do. Um, I I agree. I agree with all of it. I um, I think that to me it did come off that way. It came off more. How do I say this? Um, I want to say acceptable because I think that's the wrong word. But it was more common, and the station that women had in life back then were very different from now. So now, though some of the the same actions are occurring, we have broader language for it and it's more awareness about it and surrounding it and your life isn't set up only to have children so i think you want to take some of that into account but all that being said that still doesn't change a thing being what it is um if i beat my wife in 1882 in 2022 it's still the same you may call it something different back then but it's still the same and that was one of my um issues with Lady Danbury is I get that with a television show, a movie, a story, there has to be conflict and drama. But was this absolutely necessary? Because the actor Cyril Cyril, who plays Lord Danbury, I felt like he was a caricature. Like I I wondered how difficult would it have been to just make them have a loving marriage. To have the issue be he's always away doing business like the 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 things surrounding them felt so odd to me to include in this when again perception is reality even if it's not your intention that is the dark-skinned woman in this show and looking at her situation with lord danbury versus um charlotte's with george it's like yeah we all have different types of struggles but again what was so wrong about having a love-filled marriage or a very just common marriage where maybe she's just bored like that to me when i watched it it felt like you gave all these fantastical sex things with kate and that waterhead nigga who i hate i won't be saying his name on this oh, podcast did you, did you really just say waterhead rain yep okay i hate that boy sure? that eldest bridgerton can go to hell but with the scenes with them and then even with um his little sister and simon it's just like they had some great scenes you know charlotte and george with all their back and forth had some good scenes and that i was like why does her i'm not the morality police i really don't care but why does her affectionate love situation sexual situation have to be with violet's daddy when he was already married all them unattached white men, all those black men, all those Asian folks who were like in the ton. I was like, this, what? <laughs> I didn't like it, but I was like, I, I can't put 
my finger on a full explanation. I just know it felt so wrong considering the way that sex and intimacy and love and relationships has been handled throughout the other um, seasons. And so I don't know if maybe this was something included in the book. Maybe there's something with the source material that I'm missing. But even with recounting Violet and her husband's relationship, it was all the stress was him dying and her damn near having a miscarriage or dying at birth. Like it wasn't that. So I don't know. I, I didn't like it. Um, <laughs> so I have an opinion that's very much unlike a lot of people's, except for, was it Lady D who talked about, um, duty or, uh, sort of a chore? Um, yeah. So I, so I have a, a very different opinion from a lot of people. So first of all, I had no problem with it. Second of all, I had no problem with it because she was a dark skinned actress, Third of all, I had no problem with it, but I absolutely knew it was going to be a discussion on Twitter, which is why I didn't look at Twitter before I watched this and I didn't go look at people's opinion after it because I already, after years of blogging about like Shonda shows, <laughs> like I already knew exactly what people were going to think. So this is my interpret, well, several things. One, some Black people are ugly. That guy was intentionally made ugly. He's wearing makeup and prosthetics to, I, they gave him the kind of aesthetic of almost like a gollywog. Um, if you're familiar with that. And like, um, I think it's from like a racist caricature. I thought he kind of looked like that, but I could see that, that, that they intentionally made that actor to look kind of disgusting because that is... Lady Danbury's impression of him. He is disgusting to her because this is not a relationship in which she is even regarded as a person. And the way he treats her in bed, even telling her, you know, be quiet, woman. He doesn't respect her opinion even after everything that she does. This entire relationship is duty for her and something that she never chose. And so sex scenes are not just about love. They're not just about intimacy or, or even, unfortunately, um, consent. I don't see sex as like um, something that, especially in storytelling, that is only used to show like one type of thing. They use sex in this show to show different forms of relationships and different dynamics. So the kind of sex they showed in there where um, Lady Danbury is very uninterested and not really connected to it. She's bored because she does regard it as like, this is the laundry or, you know, having to cook or whatever that I have to endure, but I have to endure it with my body. And so we understand that she's never had any other experience like of sex and doesn't know the joy of what it, you know, could be. Of course, I think, you know, it's unfortunate that she didn't get to have her like Black love redemption, like after her husband died and has it with Violet's daddy. But, you know, I didn't get too hung up on that. But I also didn't get hung up because she was like a Black character and experiencing like a relationship that really no one wanted to be in. I didn't find it to be um, idiosyncratic for its time that they were portraying. Like, yeah, a lot of women do regard that as a duty. And the, the more important thing there is that it's to show the audience that this woman is not regarded as a person. And even after that, what the story does with this character after he dies, she starts coming to grip with, she says a line, I don't even know how to breathe air 
that he hasn't exhaled. Meaning I don't know myself as a person without him. And what we get to see is her beginning to come into herself as a person with self-regard and power outside of that marriage. And so that awful sexual relationship was part of this disregard of this woman as a human person. So like, I didn't have an issue with it there. And I really try not to bring like 21st century, um, too many 21st century sort of like opinions about things to something that is being portrayed with dynamics from a different time period. And yeah, of course, there's a lot of modernization even within this series. But I didn't find that relationship to be problematic, but I knew that people would interpret it as such. Now, I'm on, so a lot of this, my, what I do is go on Tumblr and kind of get a little more clarity on the characters on these different shows. Queen Charlotte isn't no different. So I'm, I'm seeing a picture of the actor who played Lord Danbury and how they definitely had him looking on the show. And someone made a comment said Shauna Rhimes had Cyril Nuri out here looking like a Tyler Perry character. And <laughs> um, like, I, mean, I don't well. disagree. I mean, the wig was very Tyler Perry esque. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh my God. So, yeah. That actor is fine. <laughs> He's a good looking man. That was uh... see, 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 see. <laughs> I'm looking like they got that man looking, looking crazy. Yeah. I, I, okay. <laughs> Dude, when it comes to the looks, I, I want to say this. Last season, um, we spent more time in Lady Danbury's house because she was hosting the Sharma sisters, or I should say the Sharma family. There was a portrait of Lord Danbury there. And I think the issue is that whoever created that portrait of Lord Danbury created that gollywog because what they did was they made Cyril Cyrus Neary, uh, the actor, resemble that portrait as a way of like continuity. But I do think the extraness probably is her perception of this is what he looks like. Because one of the things that we did see is that, or throughout this series, is that you don't have to sit for the portrait. The artist can put you in later and they can also change your looks, i.e. Uh, make her lighter. So there's some artistic interpretation that's there as well. I'm glad you said what you said, uh, KP, because I thought I was gonna have to give the dissenting view. Um, firstly, I, I, I think that when it comes to consent, that we see them already engaged in the act. So we don't know to imply force or something else is a little bit much. What I can say that we got was boredom. And I also think that it is a contrast about satisfaction and marriage because she's having these conversations with adult Violet and saying that, hey, I had a gardener who had a green thumb who kept my garden blooming and now I'm withering on a vine here. What do I do? And like you said about finding herself and I saw, I, I had two reference points of this series, the color purple. And I, I talked about Mr. Uh, Cause she's, you know, my Lord and you know, how Celie called her Mr. And also coming to America. 
when she says that I was promised to him at age of three. And I, you also talked. I literally with, thought of coming to America too when she said that. Whatever the, you. <laughs> that's right. And Shonda just stopped like, whatever you like. I drink this brandy because my husband liked it. And I said, ooh, she just stopped short of walk like a dog. And, but that wasn't my only coming to America reference. Uh, the episode one was entitled Queen to Be. And I was so disappointed that nobody sang it. She's your queen to be. I was like, oh, really? Adolphus ain't doing his job. Like, Brimsley, this was your job. And no, it didn't happen. So I was seeing um, those those references and also with Lady Danbury. And I thought about um, just the relationship that she had and serving him in different ways. Uh, this, a Seeley served Mr. domestically and... Uh, Lady Danbury, Agatha served Herman's ego. And so in a different way, but there was also- And libido, ego and libido. Ego and libido. And and when she She talked about- My my bad, she said that on, I guess when she was talking to, I want to say Violet or maybe Charlotte, but she did say about how he just thought that girls should be used as breeders. So- yes. And shouldn't be educated. Yes. And that's why later on her philanthropy, she said, I have, I fund a school for orphans to educate girls because my husband didn't believe that that's what girls should do. And yeah, absolutely. And that was her way of being like, fuck you, nip-. you know, like, uh, like getting back at it and um, using the money and using his name. It, it was like, haha. That also being said, the great love that, Lady Danbury said she had. I don't think that it was Violet's daddy. I think that Violet's daddy was just a standpoint for her to understanding her body and her desires and under, and learning herself so that she knew who she, what she wanted. And so her Suge Avery could have been any and anybody else. And um, her Seely's pants was her den of iniquity. That what she had and and the choices that she started to make when she started to know herself and love herself and make choices for herself. So I, I resist any attempt to characterize Lady Danbury as a victim, but uh, I don't know if KP is still there, but I also wanted to transition to what you wanted to say about motherhood while we talk about Lady Danbury. Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, I was I was saying here here to what you just said, resisting her um, being seen um, as uh, a victim. It's also just not Shonda's thing to do that anyway. What she does love to do is show women in situations in which one could feel trapped or people would view them as trapped, and then watch these women find a way to come into themselves and rescue themselves out of it. And you see that with Charlotte, you see that with Lady Danbury, that is her female heroine archetype that she makes the heroes and like leads of her of her work, and especially the Black ones. But as for motherhood, I, you know, we spent two seasons of Bridgerton seeing Violet, Viscountess Bridgerton, had a very idyllic marriage. She you know, as an only child grows up to have all of these children who are beautiful and well-bred and are marrying well and, you know, all of this business. And I think we don't really get to 
think about that situation as, oh, right, this is not how it is for many um, women. And we see that example with Queen Charlotte and also with Lady Danbury. We've discussed Lady Danbury a little bit in terms of, to me, she did not seem that interested in her children either. And perhaps because the relationship in which they were brought up, not disinterested, but she did not seem like a doting mother to me. And I think we have these, we've grown up with these very sort of like exemplary pictures of motherhood and how mothers are supposed to sort of in a way like their men serve their children as in give their lives to them and all of who they are um, to nurturing and caring for them and sort of like giving of themselves. And between Queen Charlotte and Lady Danbury, that's not the picture that we get because both of these women are contending with issues of self and issues of like a, a much larger force and kingdom. In Charlotte's case, I think what the series wants us to take away, especially when her children start to question her as a mother, like you were never a mother. And even Brisby says to her, you know, repeats, you are a great queen. And she wants him to say she's a great mother. And he's like, you're a great queen because, you know, da, 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 da. And so what we are to understand is that with these 15 children that she has had, her number one priority has been making sure that the king, not just out of a sense of duty, but a legitimate sense of love and care, has what he needs because that also means that she has what she needs in maintaining that closeness and that relationship. Because we saw from this series how his how coming to this country, he was really sort of like what she had. And she actually did enjoy him as they got to know each other and come to love him. And part of loving a person means knowing him. And so in her knowing of him, she wanted to very much like maintain that relationship. That relationship was primary for her. And because the love that he and understanding that he required was so much work, I don't think she had it in her as one person to have much left for her children. And I think we come that that is the view of motherhood where you have a very demanding, whether it is job, because the king was kind of partly a job and also partly sort of love, that she just didn't have enough left. So everybody can't get a piece of me because there's just like a finite me that there is to have. And with Lady Danbury, of course, the only like comment I saw on Twitter sort of accidentally was a friend of mine saying, oh, I really hate that they gave Lady Danbury children. And for me, like I didn't mind it because her life didn't seem at all oriented around her children, except to just make sure that they're sort of set up for what they need. They didn't, she didn't seem to identify motherhood or her sense of self or identity through motherhood. And I like these two more complicated portrayals of motherhood, especially with view of Black women, rather than that kind of the usual trope that we get. I will say, though, that these portrayals are very much informed by Shonda's own sort of perception of motherhood. I read her book, Year of Yes, which came out in 2015, and she has three children that she has um, adopted. And she talks about the fact that it's important to her 
to maintain the time and the room that she has uninterrupted to write every day. And that also with her children's like school, she's like, I don't have time to do my job and to make elaborate like cookies and whatever. You're going to get grocery store bought things. And that's what it's going to be because I can do this or I can bake cookies and I'm going to do the thing that I, you know, enjoy. And she talks about how you have to maintain a sense of self that is independent of the people that love you or that depend on you. Thank you. Without spoiling it, there is a deeper explanation in the book about Lady Danbury and, and her thoughts about motherhood and mothering. And we can talk about that later, just so that I don't ruin a book for anybody who wants to read it. And I think that another reason why people or this iteration of her motherhood was intriguing to some people is because of the way that she forcefully intervened with Simon Hastings in season one. Other than that, if nobody else has anything to say, while well, we're talking about motherhood, can we talk about Queen Charlotte's mess of a kiss, as Lady D wanted to talk about? Let's do it. Lady D, what you had to say about them kids? Them kids was just a hot damn mess. <laughs> Personification of spoiled. They just wasn't doing nothing. They were like bumps on a pickle, bumps on a log, whichever one you want to go with. They were absolutely useless. All of them. Till the very end. <laughs> well, they did have one use. But I'm wondering, like you said, KP, if part of the problem was that outside of the Prince Regent, right, who would be the next monarch, what use did children 2 to 15 have in terms of who nurtured them, who would actually pour into them? Because as also uh, alluded to by KP, what Brimsley said was that you were not their mother, you were their queen. And they also realized because they were in the household and had intimate space that they knew their father's madness, quote unquote, or his issues where they saw how their mother was probably like his steadying force in knowing what that relationship was like. And also saying, probably also understanding this is what love is as well, where I don't know. I mean, you know, half of them were whores, half of them were virgins, as she said. Wait, you can't step on that line. You can't. All right, go ahead. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Hey, she said instead, I have, let me look at my tweet real quick because I had that. <laughs> I know what the line is. I just want you to deliver it. Why well, I got to deliver it? You, I mean, you, you, you very, no. very versed in the, in, the act, in the acting field. Wonder Twin, when she, when she said, um, instead versions to the left of me, horse to the right. And I mm -hmm. rewind that like no less than 10 times to watch that scene again, because that was, had me laughing so hard. Definitely a rewrite. That definitely had to have come, depending on when this was shot, that was very much bad bitches to the left, money bitches to the right. You could be both yes. in the middle dance yes. all night. That had to be. That had to be. <laughs> Well, she said Beyonce was her queen. All right now. Okay, uh, so one thing about uh to add to the kids. Um, the other thing for me is that um like their parents, uh the king and the queen were 
also like really obsessed with each other and sexually as well. And I think that dynamic, I remember watching a documentary about Paul Newman and about, and their children, their adult children um, were talking about how her parents will like lock themselves behind multiple doors. Like they had a door before the door to their bedroom, you know, cause they were getting, they were very much sexually fulfilled and obsessed with each other in that way. And so I thought about that because Lady Danbury, when they were looking at the, um, that portrait of them in the exhibition, she said something about them getting it on. And Violet was like, even with the madness, it was like, it's very obvious, like with 15 children, you know, they were definitely getting it in that they were sexually fond of each other despite everything. And I think that that too can be hard on children. And I don't want to bring up the the Twitter like conversation from like months ago about how parents shouldn't be having sex with kids in the house, but we'll leave that for another time. Hey, sometimes you got to get it in when you can get it in. Absolutely. So does anybody have anything else to say about kids or do y'all want to talk about how George his madness and the sex hold on before we go on to that part of King George yeah I, I kind of disagree when I mean I understand what what they said about her about Charlotte being the mother to her kids but there was a scene where she was talking to one of her sons and kind of paraphrase she was talking about how the first part is like she said love is not a thing one is able to able or not able to do based on some magic some chemistry that is for plays, love is determination, love is a choice one makes. You take someone in marriage, you choose to and you choose to love them. You do not give yourself any other option because marriage is difficult, full of pains, and the life of a royal is lonely. So grab someone and you hang on. You love and you love hard because if you do not, you are lost. And then when her kids counted and said, well, Mother, I'm afraid that I would not be able to love her. And it was just like that part right there was just like, you know, she had to step away from that queen part of herself and step into that mother role. Like, listen, you're part of royalty and you have a lot of expectations on you. So this is going to be tough on you, but you have to do it. And, you know, loving someone is does take a lot out of you to make it work. It's like more than compromise, you know. It's just definitely was giving them jewels to think about going forward. Man, fuck them kids. No, um, sorry. I, I agree. I, no, no, I agree. I um, but I, I came into it pissed off at them. But then I was like, I don't. The longer I watched the series, the more I felt for them because I think you're, what we see as like disobedience and stress and annoyance from them, is just what we got from George times fifteen. They disappointed charlotte and she's the main character and so we feel how she feels but the comment that brimsley made about was it him or was it danby i think it was him where they were like these daughters would not they weren't going to leave you like they weren't going to when they saw the shit you went through with your husband they weren't going to did you expect them to leave you and go make kids or whoever said that but that led me to think that this madness that they saw from their father they saw firsthand and so if I'm one of 15 and I'm lower in the count, I am almost maybe counting on my older siblings to give you the air. And I may even be afraid to give you an air because if my father has gone mad, who's to say my child won't? And then also looking at 
Charlotte as a 17 year old coming to England and being the bride, it's like, I, I did not like them at first, but I had to consider both George and Charlotte's childhood and how, the shit that they, that we saw them go through. And I'm like, imagine going through that with 14 other siblings. And then, like you said, not really truly mattering because you're number 13, you don't, have the same degree of importance on your life that your brother that's number seven has on his and definitely not your brother that's number one has and so i started to feel for them more they still were a bit aggravating but it was also like what more do you expect from them the situation that they've been born into was frustrating for you guys as parents one of one and one of two it's one of 15 and Though this is like a mixed, diverse cast, they're like they're products of this great experiment. I feel like there is so much more that's kind of left on the cutting room floor, so much more to kind of unpack because those things are like mixed race children who mostly present as white in this space where we don't know what the racial tension is like because the very fact that there's a black girl marrying George was the great experiment so now what happens if i'm daughter number uh 13 i have a child that's mad and child is black like i i just felt like there was so much more that either i was reading into or that i was kind of um projecting onto them by watching the story of charlotte and george unfold where i was like yeah we can call them crazy and all over the place but like can you blame them even if Charlotte was the greatest of mothers, in their opinion, I think we still would have ended up with, because look at Violet and the Bridgesons. They're all beautiful people, beautiful kids, but Anthony is ain't worth shit. Anthony is the worst person in that whole family. Fuck him. You know, we got, so, yeah, uh, they're crazy, but I, I felt more empathy towards them as the series went on. I'll say that. Since you started talking about the great experiment, and the children being actually the second generation of the great experiment. Can you talk a little bit more about POCs, what you think about the great experiment as a whole and just how it landed? I thought it was interesting. I don't know if that's historically, if that is actually what this was called, because it wasn't Charlotte, though black, it was like maybe 2% black or something. Like, wasn't she like... <laughs> pale as fuck um no but in this i um i thought it was interesting and i thought it was a better title than being like the ebony project or like something silly you know so i i, oh I enjoyed that <laughs> i feel like a lesser show would have gone with like i don't know this world epidemic or something something silly so i thought that was a, a good name for it that wasn't offensive both back then i would imagine it wasn't and even now out of all the complaints about this series that has never been one that i've heard um i, I enjoyed that because you did give us i feel like w with the first season with dan barry and simon you gave us discussion of like his station and how this could all be ripped from like you they address race in a way that made sense with the story. And I think having the great experiment be a thing and then show how the court or whatever got more color in it and framing it as the great experiment, it just felt better. It felt like something that everyone could easily understand and it wasn't offensive. Um, I do 
like this idea that, and it may just be me who thought this, but though Queen Charlotte was the queen, Lady Danbury was the queen. Like whenever there was a problem, she was always at the top. And she also had the ear of the queen. When the POC folks were concerned about their station in life, they rallied around her at her house. So even though it would be in a maybe just given title sort of way, she was the queen of this particular sect of people who were living in England. And I I truly enjoyed that. I only wish that we would have gotten another scene, be it two minutes or 30 minutes long, where her and the rest of these um, Asian and brown and black people had a gathering separate from the great experiment where you saw that they were a community because that's the thing i felt like it was lacking prior to being called to be queen charlotte's court i'll stop there piggybacking on your point um your early point range is to say i really like the name the great experiment because what it also alludes to is the way in which the powers that be or white supremacy will grant rights based on their needs and their convenience, because something is an experiment if you can end it, or you know what I mean, or a project if you can end it. Because the definition of a project is a thing that has a beginning and an end. An experiment, if it doesn't go right, you start with another one, you know, do something else. And I thought that that was really indicative of the ways in which sort of like white supremacy works, that if it's convenient or works for them at the end of the day for their ultimate goal, then things can go ahead. And I think we've seen a lot of like rights and advancement and equality in our modern world work very much in the same way. The other thing is that it also really reminded me of the kind of the Obama era and how you get a Black president and then suddenly you get more commercials with Black people in them. You start seeing more Black people on like um, the, the news. And then when Trump came into office, you had this big de-Blackening, if you will, that happened. So we got to get these people out of here on to the next, as if that was for an experiment, that was for a time. We've had the Black president, we're going back to this, which made me frame Lady Danbury's fight to keep these um, titles and gained rights more than just one king or one generation, that they had to lock this shit in. And so they didn't, for them, it wasn't an experiment because these were their lives. Like it can be an experiment to y'all, but we're not going back. So we're going to do what we have to do in order to, for this not to be an experiment for, for us. And I would say lastly, that your point about Lady Danbury as the queen, um, I think she was definitely positioned as the most important liaison between the crown and the town or the town. Mm-hmm. And that I regarded her as kind of like the people's princess, if you will. Well, I like that. Yeah. yeah, she definitely like if there was an issue, she went and had everything. They went to her. Just like mm-hmm. especially when they talk about the first um I guess the first ball and how she sent those invitations out and then it was just like um and they were trying to disregard it, but then when they found out the king was going, everyone had to get on that good foot and <laughs> get over to that residence. Yeah, yeah. I will say, I especially like, though the princess pissed me off the whole season, I had to step outside of myself and acknowledge that a lot of that was me being like, 
why does white woman get to do such and such? And it's like, no, look at what you're watching. This is this is part for the course. But the more I watched her, she was my favorite antagonist. I loved her because I liked that conversation she had with Dan Barry where she started to cry. She said, oh, no, no, don't do that. You were a great adversary. Like, we had something going on. It's as if she was playing this game. That was my game. game. She didn't know about she did. She said, let me check you real quick. Yeah. It's like, it's like girl, like, pull up your ovaries. Come on. No. Look, she's like, I'm bored. Like, because what did she say oh, um, when they asked about the dark? I'm a woman. I don't remember names. Like, she had this one facade for, like, the men. And New then it's, unlocked. it's very, like, Game of Thrones. And... I'll she was say, in Game of Thrones. Listen, oh, she Caitlin was. Stark. Oh. Caitlin Stark. That, Caitlin Stark. That's why she looked so that's freaking right. familiar. It was yeah. pissing me off the whole, bruh. <laughs> but I, I, I love that. And it, as pissed off as she made me, at the end of this, I ain't gonna hold you. I was like, I want to know her story. I don't have to have a full season, but I want, I want to know how did she get here. So, yeah. <laughs> I think that that's something interesting to say that I was going to say for the books, but I will say that the vision of Shonda Rhimes into creating these characters and giving them nuance, because again, she's a new character. And when we talk about motherhood, she is yet another representation of motherhood and the things you will do to protect your son, because she was running things to say, no, I say nothing. The king says, I'm representing the king and things of, of that nature and what she had to do in terms of intrigue and her cunningness to ensure that her uh, son and his son's line remain. And at the end of it, when she tells Charlotte, like, look, y'all love each other. It's on you. That conversation she had with the kids is essentially Augusta talking, you know, like saying, hey, y'all, uh, the job is that your line remains and I need for the children to do that. So I'm also looking out for you. Your line needs to remain or otherwise this life that you have been born to, this life that you are establishing will no longer be yours. Um, in terms of the great experiment to me, I didn't like the, t the word experiment because we're so used to hearing experimentation on black bodies. So I think project may have been better. However, the using the terminology that's established, the great experiment to me was season one and their color conscious casting of Bridgerton. Because a lot, what this season did for me was to, or I felt, took on a lot of critique. Like Shonda heard you about season one and she said, all right, let me answer your questions. And so there was a direct line especially through Lady Danbury and what she said about race, about like a king fell in love with a queen. And that is how we got here. Because the blackness, the experiment is, well, let's have the rich black people elevated to be a part of the queen's court. Now, the one of the most respected people of the court notice everybody says like oh i thought you were quiet and she said was i quiet or was my husband loud or the fact that brimsley knew who she was and said i always liked her uh people saw her and they knew about her and now they just elevated her to be a part of the queen's court now i need y'all to correct me if i'm wrong but it seemed to me that the initial court were all black people like i didn't see any yeah. 
Asian people. Okay. So when I said earlier about the Black feminism, I feel as though the expanded court that we have now is Charlotte and Danbury saying, not for one of us, but for all of us. All of us need to be included and diverse part of this this court, this crown, the ton England. Okay, KP, I saw you unmuted real quick. What's up? <laughs> no, I just wanted to support that statement and draw a parallel to um, modern times to say it often acts, it often happens that way. If we look at just America, right, and the progress made with certain like rights and um, equality. Black people have fought for those things and they have made everybody's mm-hmm. life better. So to me, that mm-hmm. was part of saying that, that yeah, the the court was black in the first place, but they didn't keep it that way. They extended that shit to all the other people of color because when we win, everybody else, it trickles down to everybody else. It doesn't mm-hmm. often happen the other way around. Like if Asian people or Latino people get something. And this is absolutely, this is no shade to any of those communities. I'm just talking about the way in which white supremacy works and how deeply entrenched anti-Blackness is that Mm -hmm. once you can cut through the anti-Blackness, it helps everything else. Say that. And and we saw that because Lady Danbury hosted the Sharmas. Mm -hmm. In her house, spoke well of it. And so it's not like a leap. There it is. It was in season two. So that was like my response to the great experiment. It was to address the criticism of, except for uh, Marina, uh, of what you heard. That was for you, Rain, for season one, but the greater aspects of how did they get here? And then the other thing that I really want to make sure that I say is that this is fantasy and based on historical events, this is an alternative timeline mm-hmm. in which the queen is definitively black. The end. There is no question. It just is. We go from there. So they recognize in this respect that she is black, played brilliantly by Golda in India. She needs that reflection in the court. I think that Augustine, who was running the court, knew that people like Lady Violet's mother weren't going to accept her. Hmm. And if they didn't accept the queen, what would that do to the mad king? Or knowing that she's also trying to protect her son. So I need for them to be elevated. And they couldn't, they didn't elevate everybody. Like, I don't know that they would go to Will, you know, as it is right now, the former Hmm. boxer. Uh, he has some money, but I don't know if they would elevate him that they would the Danburys, who had a tenuous connection. But let's be real, they had diamonds from Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. No Kanye. So it's just the classism still exists. 100%. Absolutely. In That's the level it was working on. Yes. Yeah. I, I want to say that this show, regardless of your critiques, I feel like you have to acknowledge that Shonda did something right in ways that other shows do terribly. Shonda gave us this diverse cast in season one and made it a good show, even if it wasn't centered on these black and brown people. We didn't need it to be because the show's not about them. But the more she opens up this world, she's already laid down the foundation that allows Queen Charlotte to exist. 
But look at something like Game of Thrones, where then you do House of Dragon and you're trying to force in all these black and brown people. And it's like this this doesn't you can tell it's a diversity grab. It's a oh, let's make such and such family black now. But like for what? Because if we know what's coming is a predominantly white cast, I can still enjoy that show. But now it's like you're trying to play catch up or clean up where Shonda didn't have to do that. This Queen Charlotte story only amplifies what we've already got. It doesn't try to rewrite history with a prequel. So I'll say I, I enjoyed that about it. Kind of related to the great um, experiment. I just didn't want to be remiss um, about it. But the friendship the two black girls and that friendship instead of like, or coming into a friendship and that protectiveness sort of, especially from lady Danbury, because she initiates this. And, you know, I think there was a little bit of like cunning there in the beginning, you see her really start to come to understand and regard Charlotte as also a person, not just somebody who can like better the society, but that she can have a relationship with. And I, and I, I really, really enjoyed that aspect of the show. These two young Black girls sort of like finding their way in this world from different perspectives and different experiences, but figuring out how to make one another's life better and support each other. I loved her, Lady Danbury, being there for the birth of um, Charlotte's first child as well. So I just want to shout out the friendship. Yes. And a lot of their conversations centered not just around men. So they passed the Bechdel test and not just between Charlotte and Lady Danbury or Agatha, but also Agatha and Violet and just across the board that there was definitely space to be, to discuss agency and their own needs and wants outside of men. Yes. And really shout out to that scene in the whole garden metaphor and that scene with these two older women on screen talking and confessing to each other that they have sexual needs, that they want like satisfied. I thought that was really amazing because it was not about, I want a man. It is, there is something in me that wants satisfying and to feel pleasure again. And I, um, made me a little emotional and I, um, just thankful to Shonda for having that in there. Well, since you're talking about pleasure and satisfaction, if no one else objects, shall we talk about the sex? Even day or all day? Today is an even day, and if it wasn't an even even day, Sir Reese, I would have said sorrows, sorrows, prayers. (laughs) I'm so going to talk about it anyway. (laughs) Let's just peep right with the even day situation. Mm -hmm. Most months have thirty days, fifteen kids. 15 days that they would have been doing it per month with the even day situation. I Mm. thought that was cute. It was. So when we get the meet cute with Charlotte and George, it is, and speaking of romance novels, tropes, it was clearly love at first sight. Attraction was in the air. They got married. Well, she could have gone over the wall and he gave her the false sense of choice 
I know that you're deciding and I hope that you don't go over the wall and that you meet me at the aisle. You know, like and the fact that none of y'all said, meet me at the altar in your white dress. None of y'all sang, let's get married. All right. But um, so they get there and then he leaves after them. They had, it seemed a good reception. They were getting along. She didn't know what was going on. It didn't happen that night. It didn't happen for many nights to come. And then when they did have sex the first time, it seemed, you know, he seemed, um, well, patient in a way that he asked her, do you know what happens? And I'm good with buttons. Now, at first, I thought that perhaps they were gearing up for George to be a virgin. Maybe he didn't know what to do because he didn't have Lady Danbury to draw him pictures. But what do you all think about, you know, leading up to sex before we get to the even day conversation in terms of when it just gets into uh, a little different type of sex with their initial coming together and then just transitioning on to their coupling and how you felt as though the scenes went and did it live up to Bridgerton standards or what you think Bridgerton standards are and Lady K, KP, let's start with you. Um, I would just say that it didn't build it in the way that the, the two seasons um, of Bridgerton have. So I didn't really have that same expectation. Um, the guy, Corey Milcrease, he's, as they say over here, a bit of all right. Um, he's very fit. So I appreciated seeing his back <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> and getting it in with um, Charlotte, who's just so like adorable to me. Um, but no, I enjoyed their sex scenes. I love that Shonda, speaking of like to continue the Beyonce thing, she did a surfboard moment in the bathtub. Like, I love that. <laughs> oh, wait, can I just say really quickly, that was a moment that reminded me of Livian Fitz. The bathtub? the bathtub when she was there he said just get in i was like tony goldwin i uh, see you're the scandal i can definitely see that like yeah not I just say it yeah i can see you know what's very funny it's not a sex scene but like um i am a secret fanfic writer and so like i literally yesterday wrote a scene of them in the bathtub they're not having sex they're having a conversation but i guess they probably had sex before that and i thought oh this is so adorable like um, i i love this and it's in a copper tub freestanding copper tub that looks exactly like the one in the thing so that's before i saw the series because i binged it last night and um and uh, and today um, but anyway, yes, I think their um, sexual like obsession with each other and the always ready to throw down definitely is very Olivia and Fitz because they like could not stop fucking um, whenever they were together. So I've definitely got that kind of vibe between um, between um, Charlotte and the and the King. But it wasn't it wasn't like the first season. Uh, the sex was different. And I think that that's fine for me. So I don't know what people's like criticism of it, but I guess I just didn't have the same expectations. So like I was good. I agree. I enjoyed their sex because it did feel different from everyone else. Like Daphne and Simon was very different. Um, Kate and that 
man she married that was different like it really felt it it felt right for them like you're all i'll say shonda i was so pissed off at her because i felt like charlotte i you you had me anticipating this marriage and when he left her that's when i started getting like emotionally invested and very pissed off and angry and so i think she did her job because i did have such a visceral response so when it got to the um to the sex it i'm sure you could find a problem with it but i didn't i felt like she's this young girl away from home a beauty and a beast situation where i'm i'm with you because i want to but also it's my duty and then you're you're not the man you said you were and i'm supposed to just adapt so even when they got to the even odd days and the frustration to figure out what's wrong with him i thought the sex scenes were really good and that these are two young people with their own shit going on but they're not these bridgertons they're like hungry for each other the scene that stood out to me was when they were eating dinner and they just started fucking on the table and everybody was yes! like still in the room <laughs> Like, all right, less for exit stage. (laughs) Brimsley and and Reynolds was like, uh uh, get uh, no free show here, but that's how you make 15 kids. That's that. So, yeah, it was believable. It was, you know, what see, that was my missed opportunity for Beyonce. Like, why was there not driver pull up the partition, please? Like, where was the (laughs) instrumental to that? I hear you. All right, Lady D, what do you have to say? It was some good stuff, it was. And that's where I'm going to leave it because everybody else pretty much put it out there. It was good stuff. And I remember previous episodes, someone was upset about the lack thereof of the sexual nature of the show by saying no names. Me? (laughs) (laughs) I said it. Okay, I mean, so that's all you got to say? Just You just came off a mute to shade me? (laughs) We shade each other, so what are you talking about? (laughs) Fine, fine. Well, um, I do want to talk about another sex scene, and that is between Brimsley and Reynolds. So, well, okay, immediately, Rain, you shook your head. You better not throw that at me. That's that's very homophobic. Don't throw that at me. No, what? No, you shook your head. Like, are we going to talk about them now? Like, or I thought I took it to you saying like, um, that's that was not a sex scene. So I was just like, oh, was it not? No, no, it was. I, I I think so. I um, I enjoyed them. I didn't at first. Brimsley, I'll say, is bad bitch number one. I don't know if y'all saw when. When Charlotte cussed her kids out and left out the door, that look that he gave, like, I, I don't know. It's whatever. That's minor. But um, him and Reynolds, I enjoyed them. Um, I think when you're uh, incorporating representation into different properties, you want to do it in a way that makes sense. Though this is fantasy and anything can be anything, we do know that it is still maybe like parallel to our reality. And so this idea of them being these secret lovers to me never felt like the secret or the embarrassing or treacherous part was the queerness it was that y'all are supposed to serve two other the most important people in in the in the kingdom and so i like that because it never felt like the queer element was this sinful hateful evil thing they always felt like 
two co-workers who happen to have fallen for each other and now just have to get together in stolen moments. And I like that. I like it with anybody. It could be gay, straight, lesbian, whatever. I like that type of story when it's done well. And seeing these two men of two different, well, canonically having two different body types, even though when they had sex, they were both like small ass little white boys, but still seeing them on screen and being able to have this expression and it be just as regular of an occurrence as oh now the queen is a more like that that was i enjoyed having that particular representation i would like to see now that they've done this what does that mean for maybe something like eloise's story going forward if that will be impacted or if i'm just projecting my alphabet mafia shit onto her but i feel like that little girl is queer um but I, I enjoyed them and I enjoyed the build up to their relationship because the reveal, because I thought they just hated each other. So I think Shonda did a really good job uh, with them, too. And just this hopeless helplessness of like, if you stay with the king, we can be together always. But if you don't like our relationship is determined upon their relationship and the success of this great experiment working, because otherwise, even if Reynolds was a woman, there's no way. You can devote yourself to anybody else being a, again, Julius to the Beyonce of the queen. You you can't be anything but that. So I did enjoy their story. I wanted to know more. I actually just uh, agree with everything Rain said about them. And I will reiterate, um, I'll just add on to what you said about how it didn't feel like, oh, some taboo world in which their queerness was happening. And I think that was cemented by the fact that Brinsley says to Queen Charlotte in, you know, sort of like, quote unquote, present day um, Regency period, that how would I have expect to have anybody be with me? And you think it's about to be some like homophobic girl shit, and it's not. It's about the fact that he serves her and he serves the kingdom. I don't have time. No one, I can't be with anyone because my life is about you. And I love that because Shonda has repeated that kind of theme. She very much used Scandal's White House um, by applying this kind of crown metaphor to it. And um, that office being like, you have to serve the nation. You're not a, per- you're not a person. You're a statue. Um, you don't belong to yourself. And I remember one time Cyrus was like, to James, I can't, speaking of gay relationships, I can't have a baby with you because I already have a baby. And he was talking about the president. Like, that's my child that I have to see it through for. So I can't do this whole family life with you because that is my life at the White House. And I thought that that was very similar um, with their relationship, that their ultimate priority was serving their king and queen. Do my claps in the chat for that one. How amazing that this um, premiered and aired just on the cusp of the coronation, like just truly amazing, iconic, bow down. Then um, the other thing I want to say is about Meghan Markle. I think, um, I can't remember her name, but Violet's Mama, that's definitely about the modern day British press and the horrific racist attitudes that they don't want to legitimize. And I loved when little Violet, they're having that discussion and the mother is like, well, they may have titles and money now, but that doesn't make them us. And Violet was like, 
but that's what we are. We got titles and we, you you know, like you could have the exact same thing, but white supremacy is so invested in being in opposition to blackness that they will find ways that even when it doesn't make sense to make themselves better, because that is the inherent lie of whiteness anyway. And I just thought that that character was very much a shout out to the attitudes that people have today towards um, Megan and that bit of blackness um, in her. The last thing I want to say is I really appreciate, even though I said, I try not to break too many like 21st century sensibilities to looking at this series. You know, I don't try to apply the discourse that we have um, to some of the things that may be more problematic, but the mental health conversation. I remember when I was younger that this particular King George and the madness of King George, um, the that film from uh, a while ago, and how he was very much synonymous with madness. Of course, we also know that this is the king that was on the throne when America rebelled against Britain and, you know, fought for uh, its uh, freedom. But to revisit what befell him, even though we don't completely understand what it was. And I think what the show tried to do is perhaps, they never give it a name, but I took it as them sort of like relying on a sort of like a type of bipolar diagnosis. I know that there are varying degrees. I interpreted it that way. And I really appreciate seeing his humanity, especially episode four, where we get to go back and see everything from his perspective and how he really kind of considered to him, himself to be a problem and kind of a a poison and why he wanted to isolate himself. And then we find out from his mother later on in that wonderful scene with Lady Danbury that she suffered abuse from his grandfather and that George was also abused by that grandfather. So I don't know if we're supposed to interpret that that was sort of like played into his mental health struggles, but we live in a way better society where we can have these conversations. So I appreciate the show taking a look back at um, this historical figure, even though it is a kind of a reinterpretation of it and by portraying his quote unquote madness in a humane way. Amen. A lot of people forget that this is a very same King George that we made a caricature from in Hamilton. And of course, we did a discussion about Bridgerton, Hamilton, and the case for color conscious casting. And I'll put that in the show notes. So now we have a different characterization of King George. So can you talk to us about the character and what you, and the madness and things that you'd like to say? Um, okay. So just everything that, that was just occurring with King George from him, you know, being in the room and he's scribbling on the wall, he's doing, you know, all types of like drawings and math. And then he's running out to the field and he's like stripping naked and everything. And it just shows that he definitely was dealing with, I guess you could say the pressures of being king was thrown upon him and how, and then also he had to find a queen as well. So there was just a lot that he was just experiencing 
in that time period. And, you know, really no one, Charlotte is just experiencing that. She's, you know, wondering what's going on. And it's just basically she had to learn how to love him because of it. And it was just amazing to see just how the way it developed between them, especially when, I think when they were laying under the bed and he was like, they were laying next to each other and it was like they were cutting scenes back between their their present day selves and their younger selves. And it was just like, oh, it's just like amazing storytelling right here. Now, I want to say the younger sister in Bridgerton, the one... Um, Hyacinth? Eloise? No, no, I'm talking about... Francesca? Um, the Swarma sister. Yeah, that one. Um, oh, it was Kate and Edwina. Edwina, okay. So I'm trying to think it might have been a fever dream or something, but I think Edwina and King Charles had some kind of connection in Bridgerton season two where the whole marriage between Edwina and Anthony, yeah, it didn't go through. Um, and it seemed like he had a connection with Edwina that kind of just like threw Charlotte back to what they were today, youthful days and whatnot. As I said, I don't know if this was me, just imagining this, but this is just something that I just saw that just kind of like drew a parallel between Charlotte and then Edwina. And I was just drawing a comparison between those two because it was just, I think it was just something that I just saw. And I was just like, maybe that's just why she allowed that not to happen and if, you know, for her to be a diamond and everything. But she kind of just went on and just said, we'll solve this in a later date. But you get back to King Charles, he definitely, you know, what you're doing for like, then the doctor definitely was acting out some kind of, you know, I want to say revenge trope or something like that, because he said it about in here, you're, I think he said something about you're my patient or something like that, and you don't, and your royal status doesn't matter. I'm paraphrasing this at the moment, but, and then how when, at the end, Charlotte definitely read him for filth, saying, you know, you know, bad isn't what he needs to let him be mad, and I was like, go oh, ahead, hey, stand up for your man. And then she said something about, you're lucky I don't have you beheaded or something like that. It was somebody saying she's lucky he's not dead himself. But it was just a lot with the whole mental illness aspect that really just showed that if you really are being married to a person, that is what you need to, um, you have to love them in spite of everything. You have to learn, you know, how to care for them when they have those, I'll say episodes, so to speak, and what you need to do to calm them down. Because she was able to calm him down. And they were able to, you know, just retreat back to their younger selves when she they went under the bed. And that's just fine that, you know, Shauna did that very well, exploring that aspect of it. I agree with you when it came to Edwina and older King George. And I mean, that scene obviously came first with Edwina and older King George. And the Queen's reaction to it was interpreted in so many different ways that I think that in this iteration, Shonda really wanted to show or to give a definitive explanation to Queen Charlotte's response. And that was to say that it wasn't just embarrassment. It was, yeah, she froze in the moment because she was trying to figure out, I think, how much can I reveal of the two of us and what we need or what he needs in our relationship. And Edwina stepped forward and 
showed that heart that Charlotte wasn't really able to show as much, especially not openly. And I think that that's what, you know, she responded to and said, I appreciate, but then also wanted to protect the king and his reputation and and saying like, you're not going to tell anybody. And she said, all I saw was a king and queen in love. That's it. And I will not dare speak of it. And like even going further, I think that one of the reasons why she said to the court, I approve of Anthony and Kate was because if the heart who was jilted can approve and I what I saw of the sister is her trying to protect, even though things go awry, I understand that too. Well, let me ride for them too. I agree with all that. I um I, I love the way now my caveat is I don't suffer from any mental health issues that were maybe portrayed in this show but from where i'm standing and sitting i think they did a good job and one thing i do like about george and his portrayal is that it felt like an explanation not a reason it felt like this is explaining the king we get in the first two seasons it didn't feel like this tacked on thing where oh he's just crazy he just is doing some stuff like it felt he felt human they felt like there was a slow descent into whatever was going on with him. And I never, again, with the caveat that I don't suffer from these conditions, I never felt like this was offensive. And even with the critiques of Bridgerton, I have not come across that critique that, oh, this is terrible representation of mental health concerns. Um, so I'll say kudos to her for that. And just to y'all point that Edwina scene feels so much richer having watched this like this no matter how i may feel about it as a whole i think it does a great job as a prequel with enhancing the things that we saw before in such a complex way that's simple to understand i will say that in reading the book but also i'm watching the show when george was talking about when he was an infant, when he had colic, it wasn't just colic. It somehow had to impact the wellness of the nation. If he didn't eat his peas, it wasn't just a kid who didn't want to eat peas. It had this uh, longer lasting impact because of who he was and that stress. And when I read King, King, haha, that's a Freudian slip, Prince Harry Spare, he also talked and alluded to the same type of stress where when he was a child, he wasn't very studious. And so he said that he had one history teacher who was like, we're talking about your ancestors. How do you not know this? Or the lack of intellectual prowess, how that even though he wasn't in the direct line for being king, that it somehow represented the state of the nation you can't you're royal you can't be dumb you know like you're you're this you can't be that you know and it was just like i am a child <laughs> and i am learning why do you think that at birth all of this stuff was automatically downloaded into my psyche and my conscious and it was just like he, him having different issues throughout his life because if he asked for help because of the way that he was observed and reported on, um, much like 
a Lord Butte or whatever else, then it became a greater thing other than just a kid needing help. And that stress, because Harry also talks about his mental health struggles. So I I did see some mirroring between King George and Prince Harry. And I was very appreciative of the way that um, even though it, it lacked definition, that it mainly focused on the humanity of a person. So it's almost like you think they're royal, you think they're cool. Like you never know what goes on in a person's life, no matter what they project on social media or whatever. When they go home in the privacy of their own home, there may be struggles. And that person is still lovable and can give love, great love. You shaking your head, right? Oh, yeah, no, I was agreeing. Like, yeah, I agree. I, uh, my only, um, it's gonna sound like an asshole, but I understood what George is going through, but I also was like, oh, I don't care because, and not more or less George, I guess more so with Harry. It's like, yeah, you're dealing with that, but if you, a royal, is dealing with having to be the face of your whole line, every black person that robs the bank, every black person that... like, I was Amen. Like, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's the stress of your lineage, but like, we can't step out the house without looking black women in bonnets. Well, sis, I'm one black woman from Oklahoma, but I represent all black women or black men and they pants sagging. Oh, so I do get it intellectually. I understand and I, my heart goes out to him and even the George situation that was presented in the show, but I was like, if y'all can understand that, you should be able to also understand what's going on over here. But yeah, that's that. And with that, I actually have a question for y'all. If you were to recommend this series, this world to anyone, would you recommend that they start with Queen Charlotte and work forward? Or do you think they should watch it in release order? I was going back and forth with that. Oh, oh, my bad. If I got a hit, no, 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 no. I know season three is coming. This is the prequel, right? And season mm. three being not a spoiler, um, but skip it 10 seconds if it is Penelope and Colin, right? And so normally I do a rewatch to kind of remind myself. Mm -hmm. And I too was thinking, huh, when season three comes out, should I start with Charlotte and then go into Simon and Daphne and then Anthony and Ketani? And I was thinking I might because we I've already experienced it the other way. Mm -hmm. And so to just rewatch the story this way is something that I hadn't experienced. Mm -hmm. So that might give a different interpretation. What about you, Reese? Wow. I will start with the prequels. I would say watch the prequel first, then go on to the seasons, because then you'll get a better understanding of what goes on the first two seasons with every with, with the characters. So I would just say start with the prequels first, and then move on up to the east side um, of Bridgerton. <laughs> I agree. The only thing that really gives me concern with suggesting the prequel first is that depending on the person. I think Bridgerton is an interesting and entertaining series, but I would hate for, for them to watch Queen Charlotte and then expect to see a whole lot 
of Charlotte and her kids and stuff in season one. That that's the only drawback for me is that with season one and two, you're not getting the same degree of Charlotte and her kids and the king that you would in season one. But I think you could probably just figure it out. But that's the only thing that would make me maybe not recommend it. But I think I would watch the prequel first as well um, and then just go through. I have a question. Now, you got to remind me. Are you saying that somebody, like to recommend it for somebody who maybe hadn't seen it? Yeah, like somebody who has not been familiar with, maybe mm. they know about it in the grand social realm, but don't right. know the details. Okay, yeah. well then now I listening to you, something else just triggered a memory. Mm-hmm. No, I would say re, uh, watch it in the order that it was released because mm. present day Lady Danbury oh, and yeah. Violet had that conversation yeah. about Eloise and Penelope having beef. And about her husband dot like but but yeah, no, 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 you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. So so that Ugh. you know yeah. that might kind of ruin it in a way yeah. just because of that scene. Yeah. Mm, okay. Well, that answers that. <laughs> well, no, because maybe we just need to wait until all of them come out, mm. the prequels, the the sequels, and then make a decision. Mm. Because it could be like, what was that show on Netflix where they didn't change the order that you could watch? Oh, um, Kaleidoscope. <laughs> yes, that I watched, and I have I've yeah. only watched them in the order that they came out. But you mm. know, it might give us some other orders once everything comes out. Might need to ask this in like eight years, right? <laughs> <laughs> when it's done, yeah. I'm mm. just saying that, like, the, like how we do the MCU, like not the yeah. order of uh, operation, but you know something else. All right, I can. Well, see if you watch, if you watch the MCU on Disney Plus, they do give you the timeline order to watch mm-hmm. to watch all that. They watch everything. It's, they get it lead up to everything, so they do mm-hmm. give you that. If you're this person want to know the story in order. Shonda could really do that with this because there's no, I think Fast and the Furious is the only other franchise that could rival the MCU in the grand yes. like way it's portrayed. So she could do that with this Regency. All right. You know, one thing that is kind of funny to me is that the name of the show is Queen Charlotte and Bridgerton Story. And we did, I don't know, 30 minutes on Lady Danbury. Uh, we really didn't talk about Queen Charlotte. We've alluded to her. We've we talked about her hair. We talked about the actress India and how much she reflects Golda and how they take up a room and how we thought that they were brilliant. But we didn't really talk about Queen Charlotte's character. So is there anything in particular that you wanted to lift up? I mean, we talked about her being a mother and stuff like that. But anything in particular that we haven't already said about Queen Charlotte herself that you may want to lift up right now? Queen Charlotte definitely shows how she came to her own in terms of, you know, just being a, being a woman. She, you know, she kept saying, you know, she's 10, 7 years old. And I was like, oh, she's only 17 and how she's brought into this role, so to speak. And, you know, there's a lot that she had, a lot of growth that she had to do for herself. And as well as, you know, being married to it, married to the king. She also had to show that in terms of providing happiness for herself and the conversation that she had with George's mother and how they were saying that she was saying how her mother finally acknowledged that Charlotte made him happy and she acknowledged her as the queen, called her your majesty. So, you know, 
it took a, a, a fight for them to get to that point, you know, that she was being acknowledged as who she was in this time period. But she did shade the hell out of her kids every every chance she got. When she told her Wendell that she, she her Wendell was like a mother, I am married. She said, "Well, I had to do a diagram for you to know how to get things to work, and you start practicing." I was like, I was like, "Ooh!" I was like, "She is harder than me." <laughs> but we also had to laugh some because you know the kids are saying they trying. The ones that mm -hmm. were together, married, were trying. Back then, nobody recognized that there are other things that could be in play for them not to be making children. Right. When the one, and every time she mentioned the one who was married and had a child in the way, but she died on childbirth, that one always broke down the tears. Every yeah, that man, with that man, that man was distraught with his sorrows, wife dying. Sorrows, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sor sorrows, prayers. <laughs> right. Would they would they say thoughts and prayers? Yeah. So. No, sor sorrows and no, prayers. No, yeah, I'm they, they, they say thoughts and prayers, but they said sorrows. Yeah. You're right. Prayers. It's like no hug from your mother that your wife has passed. Like, no, no, kind of, no kind of no kind of consoling or nothing like that. It's like okay. nothing. Yeah. You you know your wife and your child have died, but you know I'm just gonna pat like, you back. Royal. Like like you're still royal, sir. He's like what? But I, I lost two at one time. What the right. How, I how, love do I, them. How, how do I get through this? Right. I love them. I love them. And you're just and giving me breaking them up. And I'm like, it's gonna, it's trick, it's triggering me. And she's like, oh, okay. You know. But like I say, she definitely came into her own. You having 15 kids, you know. That was a that's a that's a lot that, that you have to experience it and it's like a lot of like child rearing and everything else that goes along with it did she really rear them she liked no, making she, them she had the people who was around in the castle to raise them and mold them and she's like oh not, which one are you again <laughs> it's kind of like you know she probably was, was like um late eight bro number seven likes to do such and such but number eight and number three be shading me all the time i don't know why <laughs> I sure do, and I and you should see me calling number six, eight, and the number eight's name, and number four's number two's name. You know, like all of it. Look, once you get past, you know what four, I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, you you know I'm talking to you. <laughs> once you get past four, names is irrelevant. <laughs> you need to you need to start. You need to start. You know, just having hey, a, you. a boy. The boy. Okay, now this one. Which one is this again? Okay. <laughs> Oh no, I have done a hey you a time or two. <laughs> hey you, it person. I never did an it. No, I never did it. Hey, you, you over there. You know I'm talking to you. As we move on. And wait, does anybody else have anything to say about Charlotte? Just give me her hairdresser. That's there all. There we go. <laughs> I, I need all her stylists. I, I did like how they cared for her hair because I was saying, like, why don't I have that wrap? And, and I was looking at the rollers and saying that they probably are way softer to sleep on than these hard things that I have. <laughs> um, I will say that in terms of the aesthetic, it was really interesting to see how Queen Charlotte and King George were shot. It's, it seemed like they were shot overhead and and other ways, almost like we were always observing them. And they always had people around them, but it gave the experience to they never had any privacy. Their lives were not their own. And somebody was always watching, including us. The only privacy they got was in their bedroom, which is why they had 15 kids. 
I think that they were so used to not having privacy that that's the reason why they was willing to get busy on the on the table because it's just like you see everything else. You washed me, you dressed me like a doll when Charlotte left to see Lady Danbury because she was overwhelmed and she called for her brother to come. He was like, "You can't go with me. That's kidnapping. Your body is not your own." So why not? I don't know if that getting busy on the table had anything to do about them always being watched. <laughs> oh, no, no. I mean, not not if he was going to breathe on me like that. Uh, no, no. That's just happened because he was fine. I mean, and I will right. also say she was that fine. They, he was fine. She was fine. They had, they was mad. They was making up. That was all that was about. When you say about them being fine every day, they really looked like they were in love. Like, he, he had a smile at her. Like, he genuinely was like, and arm with her and everything. And they both look like they could be a you know, real life couple, so to speak. But, you know, the, the, um, the magazines that shot them did them a very good job of shooting them together. You know, good chemistry makes a great show. And sometimes that good on screen chemistry translates off screen too. Well, I think that that's really important to selling a couple is it begins and ends with the chemistry. And and I think that the casting that they had across the board was magnificent, especially with this show. I thought that everybody did their job quite well. Reynolds tickled me to death because I was not expecting that voice to come out of that body. I don't know why. I obviously wasn't going to be a squeak, but just to have like, oh man, I hope you do some audiobooks. He had quite the nice voice. And I also appreciated the female gaze was live and present. Farmer George was walking around shirtless, had Charlotte pressing her face against the glass in appreciation. That and was just funny. Oh, I mean, listen, I'd have done it too. So just the tastefulness of it, but understanding that, yeah, women have desires and they're going after it. But this was a very feminist telling of a romance novel and a series. And even though the director was male, it was still very feminine centered. I've listened to some interviews and he has said that he's worked with Shonda for so long that he knows what she likes. And also she gives clear directions. So things that, and he used his own eye, of course, but definitely brought her vision to light. Last question I have for you as we begin to wrap up is, so there is a book. The book is a prequel. The book just came out. I think somebody may have asked a question about source material. The source material is Shonda Rhimes. Julia Quinn, who created the Bridgerton series, took the scripts and the story of Shonda Rhimes and the characters and wrote the novelization. I'll answer any questions that you have, but uh, I do want to know from you all, do you plan on reading the book? Also, it is the one that we're revisiting, which is, and I'm going to read it because I wrote it out. How do you feel about a Black woman's imagination? And it's just not Queen Charlotte. It's also Brimsley. It's Reynolds. It's Princess Augusta. All of those other people. Um, how do you feel about a Black woman's imagination in the hands of a white woman who didn't originally imagine this world diversely? How do you think she will handle a Black Lady Danbury, whom she did create, Hastings, 
and the often ridiculed but never described Smythe Smith family. Before you answer that, they don't show them in seasons one and two. And then they showed them in season, well, this prequel, and that they were definitively Black. However, there is a four-book series about the Smythe Smiths. So she has written them and written them white. Okay, now I'm going to shut up. How do y'all feel? What do y'all think? I'm not interested. I won't, because I feel like your original source material was these white folks, which is not a problem. I don't think that's an issue at all. But she's also come out and said some things about not imagining black people in this world because, you know, a bunch of shit that made no sense. Um, So for me, my Bridgerton is and will always be the Shonda interpretation. So to have the book written based off of the work that this black woman did to diversify your portfolio to make you more money, I don't care. Like, I I wouldn't, I'm not going to say I would never read it, but I have no intentions on it. Because now, though you may, Julia, may do a phenomenal job, I just, I don't have any interest in it. And it's very different from you just making a world that's all white and just now it's changed. But the remarks that she's made before about not having Black people in her world and, you know, not wanting suffering and pain and this and that as if that's our default. I was like, "Eh, this is quite odd. So my... Bridgerton is and always will be a Shonda retelling, imagining, or whatever. That world that Shonda created, Earth, Bridgerton 2, 3, 4, whatever it is, that's what I'll consume. So, yeah, I'm not interested. I don't have a problem reading it because, you know, been reading, what, light romance since (laughs) I started reading books. But you know, sometimes what people say, and even with her saying she didn't imagine it, you know, a lot of stuff is about what you see, what you've been given, and what you've been exposed to. Now, in the last 10 to 15 years, we've been exposing the world to all the greatness of what we can be as Black people, unapologetically, not just the good singers and the good dancers, but, and not just the good acting, but every part of us, the good writing and the writing's been there, but it's being exposed more and things like that. And we're also, you know, coming into making part of what is being taught as public school curriculum, be more inclusive and more detailed about what history, people of color in general, just not Black folks, but Asians, Hispanics, Mexicans, what we've contributed to society, which makes exposure different and what people are going to think. As long as we don't have a bunch of uh, Ron DeSantis's running our (laughs) education systems. But I, I think a lot of that will end up changing like in the future as more writers write. Because the kids that are in school now are going to get something more than what we did in school and what our, you know, white classmates got in school because it was very much focused on one perception of what history is and what was contributed. And if we're going to talk about contributions, okay, we'll talk about Black folks because they are the biggest cohort outside of us and they were slaves and then we had a few that contributed these few things to society but we're learning that it's more than that and who we are so i think the perspective of future writers is going to be different it's like we're not 
be reading the books. Um, I didn't even, wasn't even aware that the author felt that way. So that kind of just makes me just say, oh, I'll just, you know, keep Shonda's my source material here and just think about it that way. Um, it's just amazing how something can just say they can write without saying that they can, oh, I don't have, you know, these, this set of people, you know, in my, in my vision for my way I've written and everything. And I'm like, how? I mean, it's like, you don't live in that white picket fence, you know, family with the dog in the backyard and everything. It's not relevant, so to speak. You know, it's just, your imagination is just very plain, just bleh. So I won't be reading her books and, you know, Shonda is like say Shonda's definitely making her more money and bringing more eyes to the product. So you might need to switch it up a bit, you know, and get off your high horse. Here's what I will say about the book. I read it so you don't have to. To be perfectly honest, I would only recommend you purchasing the book if you wanted to uh, complete a set. It says on the book that it is Shonda Rhimes and uh, Julia Quinn who wrote it. Um, I will say that it is a Queen Charlotte story. So it, it does focus on uh, Charlotte and George mainly. There are some Agatha chapters. The Agatha chapters don't really delve too deeply into anything. It's really just what you saw on the screen she wrote out so not too much context uh same with brimsley and reynolds because we talked about racial diversity but her original books didn't have queer people in it so what you saw on the screen she wrote out really pretty much this book is what you saw on the screen she wrote out so she novelized the script if you've seen the show you've read the book there is very little more there. There is not explicit sex scenes. So it's not like, and, and by the way, to be clear, her other books had explicit sex scenes. So she actually toned down the sex from the screen to the book. So I just want you all to know like, hey, if you want to, it's a really pretty cover and the cover in the book jacket, if you get the hardcover, is reversible. But um, if you are a completionist, fine. If you're just curious, library, please. But if you do want it on your uh, bookshelf, then, you know, just know what you're getting. How are we feeling? I mean, are we, is there anything more that we want to say about Queen Charlotte? Let's just wrap it up with final thoughts. I like the prequel. I hope that maybe we get another couple of prequels um, that focus on some of our other char adult characters more. Um, I don't know if, she, if Shonda has decided if we're going to focus, do like a Lady Danbury story, which like the full story, that would be really, really great. Or a Violet story from beginning to end. I happen to like Violet. Everybody don't like Violet, but I happen to like her. So that would be nice. And maybe even some of the uh, B characters from season one and season two getting thrown into these prequels. Um, I'm all for it. I'll watch it again when I have some time because it was very, very good. Just to watch the scenery, if nothing else. All right. Um, I enjoyed it. I do think that 
Shonda has made a mistake at having this right before Colin and Penelope because I do not care about them. So she really going to have to work overtime with that pen after this to make me care about that season because I still don't care. <laughs> but this was really good. This was really good. I think she knows. So maybe the uh, draw will be what Lady D wants, which is more story with Violet since she's come to this realization that she wants like male companionship, right? Yeah, yeah. I would so, watch that. Yeah, yeah maybe yeah. that that's what the the hook, the B story would be, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sir Reese. That is a... Uh, Final thoughts, sir. Great six episodes of, you know, backstory um, that you know, kind of filled in the blanks with Richardson season one and two. Um, Lady Danbury definitely had a hand in being tough on the Bridgerton boys. We, we didn't bring that up and everything, but um, I guess she kind of knew, she saw the charm that they had and she knew where it came from. So she basically was like an auntie, but not really that auntie, but just kind of like, you know, like telling them to straighten up and everything. Um, I agree. She knew what that Bridgerton dick did. So <laughs> there you go. She, well, you know, her. It was Ledger get, Dick. It was Ledger yeah, I was about Dick. To say, right. She didn't get Bridgerton. <laughs> it was that Ledger Dick. She knew what it did. Well, she knew what that Bridgerton Dick did because she got eight kids, don't she? But she knew what they. She knew, like, listen. Oh, <laughs> I don't mean to choke you, Ray. Ray, like, like what? wait a minute, I can't keep up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so she knocked down Violet's daddy, and Violet was her maiden name is Ledger. And then she right. married a Bridgerton yeah. and her sons were was, Bridgerton. There you the go. The connections won't connect. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> okay. So listen, so listen, when when Charlotte told him, she said, I will stand with you between the heavens and earth. I will tell you where you are. I'm like, God damn. I was like, fight for your man. For real, for real. <laughs> All right now. Man, that scene with them under the bed, that was it. Did it make you roll a tear? I didn't roll a tear, but my little heart like grew a thousand times. It makes me. It made me want to actually be. Like I said, I'm sorry, I'm not a decent person, but try to be more of a decent person in these streets, so to speak. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> it, was, it was really good. It feel good. Feel good. Mm, it was good. I did think that that was the perfect way to kind of end the scene, and you know, with the four young and old intersected i did read as a production note that the way that they did it was that uh the two younger characters did the scene together but then the older charlotte and the younger george did the entire scene together and then the younger charlotte and the older george did the entire scene together and then that's how they interspersed it that so, is truly going to make me cry. I ain't even no fucking crier, but that is so, oh, that is so dope. That yeah. Is so dope. Yeah, it was genius. So I really do have to give props to the uh, production, the DP, the director, like everybody for really making it come together. And I, <laughs> hmm? you really got some tears over there, right? 
truly that because that last scene was so emotional and I, it didn't affect mm-hmm. me. I was like, oh, this is sweet. But knowing the length I've already like wrapped up in these characters. So, yeah, that's. Oh. We, look, we could have season two of Queen Charlotte. <laughs> Listen, I definitely will, will watch it. And come back to discuss it again. All right, that's All right. what I want to hear. And well, Shonda, she... you hear, you hear, uh, Lord Reese and Rain's request. Yes. Season two, please bring it. <laughs> and uh, so, are our hearts and minds clear? Because I think that's like the perfect way to end it. Yeah. Oh, hearts and minds clear. Oh, I yeah. still got, I still got line. See. see oh no, <laughs> no, do your line readings. No, do your line readings. Okay, go for it. It really didn't come with. We didn't really talk about the the the, the dialogue here. How about okay. when she came and she said, "It is treasonous to interrupt my beauty sleep." You're lucky my face is a red jewel. If I can still have people beheaded, you will be in the queue. What? <laughs> if I can still take it, have you have your head separate from your body, that wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> I, and it's she deserves. Century, it's just the century we live in now. She deserves. All right now. All right. So I now mean, this, this, I, is, this, is, this is this I'm just saying it was just the the the, the dialogue that she was just giving me. I, I love words. I love good reads. You know, she just like when I'm having bad days, I watch. I'll go and watch Electra from Pose reads and just you know that changed my whole day around. Especially the one I where she it. did with the ladies at the restaurant. I'm yes. like, yo, that changed my whole yes. day around. I'm like, I'm good. I'm laughing and like <laughs> just saying. I love dialogues where it just the words just grab you when they come off the screen. Like, you know what? I'll fuck with that. <laughs> Shonda did the thing there. All right. You got any other lines? No, I'm good. I would it was just that one that I that, that came across. I was like, and she said she was just saying she could have your head chopped off or interrupted her beauty sleep. I was like, don't mess with a black woman when she sleeps. Okay. That goes through that's through history. <laughs> okay. You know how hard it is for us to actually get time to sleep. Right. Yeah, have you met Lady D? Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I've met Lady D and she's quite, quite a nice lady, you know, so to speak. There you go. Like, there you go. So, I mean, it's it's hard for when you actually get time to rest, you're going to come in here with some bullshit. No. So, there it is. Any Anybody else, anything else? We going to clear our hearts and minds? We good? We good. Well, for Lady D. Lord Rain, Sir Reese, I'm Lady H. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Sorrows. Peace.